Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here today as we are at the beginning of this new year. And as we look ahead, Lord, where are you leading us? Where are you taking us? We want to follow, and we want to be a people that reflect your purpose. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So I entitled the message today, Life Together. And before I really get to what I want to say about that, because I really do want to talk about functional unity together, I I want to start somewhere else with this, and I want to start by talking about the problem of unity. And And I'm not, by saying that, I don't mean the problem of not being united. I want to talk to you about the problem in a sinful world of being united. Because, see, here's the deal. Unity in a sinful world tends to look more like Nazis than like paradise. See, that's the problem with fallen humans, is when we get united, we tend to get united in the wrong things. It's one of the reasons that I think our our democratic system in America works as well as it does, because we don't get united very well, do we? I'd say we're doing pretty good at being split down the middle right now. Yay us, right? I, I tell you that maybe so that you can feel a little stress, a little less stressed about reality right now, because everything feels so divided. But what I want to suggest to you is that in a fallen world, sometimes God would rather us be divided than united. It's a little strange, right? Well, here's, here's my basis for saying that. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the tower, the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they will propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. All right, what I want you to get from this story is that there was a time when fallen humans were united. The problem was they were united to their destruction. And this is what happens to fallen humans when they get united. They get united to their destruction unless they are united around Jesus Christ. 
any other reality around which fallen humanity unites, even if initially the intention is good, in the long run will lead to destruction. That's just our reality. And understand that God from the beginning, after we fell, wanted to redeem us. God's purpose in Genesis 11 is not to create trouble. God's purpose in Genesis 11 is to save us from ourselves. Because when fallen humanity unites around anything except Jesus Christ, the long-term result is destruction. So he came down and confused the language. That was pretty effective, wasn't it? Because what are you going to instantly do? You're going you're to begin to group with the people you can communicate with, right? And what happens once we start grouping into groups that are isolated from each other. Any isolated group will, over time, develop norms and systems and shared assumptions of reality that enable them to live life together. Any group does that. Put any group together, and they will, over time, begin to come up with normative behaviors, ways to dress. You're going to see something at the end that's that's kind of amusing. Mr. Tavashi is going to come out here and, and he's going to have some unusual headwear that was normative behavior at another time. Aren't they crazy how they used to do things, he said, with his tie pulled tight up against his neck. Why do we wear these? <laughs> normative behavior, right? It happens to any group that comes together. They develop norms and systems and shared assumptions of reality. But also simultaneously as this goes on, it, it disables a group's ability to easily interact with individuals or groups who have come up with a different set of shared assumptions culture develops and then it clashes now a lot of churches most churches tend to be roughly in the size of of 100 to 150 people participating there's a reason for this that's roughly the number of people that you can get together and create this singular cultural dynamic you get much beyond that and you start getting groups within the community. So, so this is what typically happens in a church. A group gets together and they form their norms and their systems and their assumptions. And you know what happens to anybody who shows up to that group who doesn't fit the norms, systems, and assumptions? Boo! They're gone. Because they don't fit. They weren't really one of us. Okay, so now I'm not, I'm not picking on that necessarily because we find comfort in that reality and it inevitably forms. But obviously this church is too large for there to be that singular reality like that. But we do have little manifestations of it. We call it our Sabbath school classes. 
And what you can teach in one class, you better not teach in another one. You know who you are. And what you serve in one class, you better not serve in another one. Cultures within the community. You want, to, you want to know how real that is? Occasionally a class starts getting smaller for various reasons, attrition, people leaving, so forth. And then we on the staff and all of our wisdom think things like, well, we should just put those classes together. Wow, that never works out. You try to bring two classes together, you talk about a clash of culture. Come on, people, we go to church together. But culture's real, isn't it? These groupings and this culture that develops, it's essential for rational survival and progress. And so all of these groups that come together, they always have their written rules. But do you know what else they have that's even stronger? The unwritten rules. Now, you can usually get away with violating a written rule. Someone will sit you down and say, these, these are the rules, and, and you conform. But if you dare violate an unwritten rule, man, you get kicked out fast. I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, just an example of this, as to why there's so much stress in the Adventist church on this issue of women in ministry and, and women's ordination and all of this, is because we have no written rule on it. The, the fact that people are doing it, to some people, is violating the unwritten rules, which are more important than the written rules. So let's talk about America for a minute. One of the realities of America is that nearly all of us aren't from here. There, there are some Native Americans, but nearly all of us are from somewhere else. And we got here by different means. Our families came in different ways. But most of them came from, from, from reasonably coherent singular cultures and then came here and got all mixed up together. So my family, I've, I've got English, I've got Irish, I've got Scottish, I've got German. I've got trace amounts of who knows what else. But I'm not any of those things, even though that is an identifiable thing in another part of the world. And there is a culture associated with it in another part of the world. So here we are all thrown in here together and all mixed up together in this place without any real connection to our distant roots, but also with the tendency to form groups within the larger reality that sometimes mesh and sometimes don't. And because of this, we consistently over time in America have stress and strife over these realities. Prejudice. Preference. Perspective. Assumed notions of reality that come into conflict when we all get in here together. And so I'm always amused when, when, uh, when America is chided by some other country in the world for our inability to get along with each other, and then you bother to look at that country and you realize that 95% of them are all the same group. 
You know, I've heard Denmark is a lovely place to live. It would be great to live in Denmark, wouldn't it? 97.2% of them are Danes. They all agree. They all have the same heritage. I'm not surprised socialism works there. They have the same unwritten rules. But it's harder when we don't. Well, that's America, and we'll just we'll put that there. I don't really want to talk about that. What I want to talk about more is this community, this church. There is a reason that most churches don't try to do what we're trying to do, which is become a highly functional, multicultural community of believers united by faith in Christ and a commitment to a common set of values. That's what we're trying to become an intentionally multicultural community of believers united by faith in Christ and a commitment to a set of common values. So the first question you might ask is, why in the world would we do that? Because the truth is, it's way easier to do something else. It's way easier to say, this is who we are, conform or get out. That's easier than trying to intentionally find the common ground. So, so we've been doing that, and we've been trying to find our way. And, and it just occurred to me as I, was, as I was sitting here, those of you here from all these different other places, so, so I'm going to pick on you, Adriana, Adriana Passos. Is what we do here at church the way they used to do it in Romania? No, it's not, is it? All right, what about Jane Palmer? I see you there, Jane. Is what we do here like what used to be done? You're from Jamaica, right? Yeah, is is this like Jamaica? No, it's not. So, uh, is this like your experience at Oakwood? No, it's not like that, is it? No. Uh, Who who else can I pick on here? Um, who's, Who's from Cuba? Is this like Cuba? No, it's not like they do church at Cuba, is it? It's a little different. Uh, you know, we could, we could just keep going. I saw Bob Murphy. Where are you, Bob? There's Bob. Is what we're doing right now like what we used to do here 30 years ago? No. There's culture, there's generation. So why in the world are we trying to do this? Well, here's what I would suggest to you. We're trying to do this because we believe one of God's main purposes in Christ is to undo Babel. Okay? God came down at Babel because the people were united to their destruction and he divided them. But then he came in Jesus Christ and redeemed us all. And in Jesus, he's trying to bring us back. So God is seeking to undo Babel. But if the only thing we do is believe in Jesus in our own little homogeneous group, we haven't undone Babel, have we? And we're just as likely to keep fighting with each other. So God's purpose is to undo Babel by uniting in his church every kindred, tribe, and people together in Christ. 
Acts chapter 2. Here's why I think this is true. Acts chapter 2. This is that story of the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, I want to stop there and just appreciate how remarkable that verse is. We're talking about the disciples here. When were the disciples ever in agreement? Now, now having said that, appreciate for a moment how hard it is to get 11 Jewish men to agree. They're all from the same background. They all spent time with Jesus. If it's hard to get 11 Jewish men to agree, how much harder is it to get people from all over the world to agree? Do you see the scope of this task? And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is what's so cool about this. What did God do to divide them at Babel? They all spoke different tongues. What did God do at Pentecost to call them back? He gave the disciples the ability to speak to them all. Do you see that? What is happening with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit centered in Jesus Christ is the opportunity, and it's just being hinted at here, this opportunity to bring every kindred, tribe, and nation together around a singular reality the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Count on it. You try to do something like this, there are the people that are going to say you're crazy and probably drunk to try to do that. Verse 14, but Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Now, here's Peter quoting Joel from the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, quoting Joel and saying even more than he knows. Because you see, as this event first takes place and they speak these other languages, they're mostly talking to Jews from these other places. See, they're still stuck in this mindset that this is still pretty much a Jewish thing. But apparently it's a Jewish thing for Jews from all over the world. But, but no, the words themselves go further than that, don't they? It says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now Peter just assumed probably when he said that that he meant all Jewish flesh. But what did it really mean? What did we find out when he went into Cornelius? That the Spirit fell upon even the Gentiles. And and maybe he thought it was just hyperbole when he said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, but it sounds to me like gender is not essential to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, based on Joel. But then he also says, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So apparently there's not a cutoff age where you either start or stop. So apparently what God intends to do is also multi-generational. So we've got multicultural, multi-gender, multi-generational outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, we only allow outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a single group here. Is that what we want? This is the undoing of Babel. This is the ending of the disunity God caused so that we would not destroy ourselves to bring us together in the unity God enabled that we might be saved. Now at this point, the disciples are in the early stages. You remember Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. At this point, they're still Jerusalem. But Judea is going to happen, it's going to spread to Samaria, and it's not just going to be Jews at the end of the earth, it's going to be everyone to the ends of the earth. But it's not going to be a simple chronology, is it? You know, sometimes we're a little despairing when what we're trying to achieve is hard. Okay, there were an awful lot of really good believers in Jesus who were extremely uncomfortable with Gentiles being part of the church. And that's us. We're the Gentiles. Kind of funny that we would later on be really uncomfortable with others being a part. It wasn't a simple chronology. And Paul would wrestle with this attempt to bring Gentiles and Jews into a new and larger reality. And the truth is, in order to bring this thing together, they both were going to have to give up some things. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is addressing this. Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He's undoing Babel. Jesus has made peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a spiritual dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you see what he's saying? He's rebuilding the tower. But now you're the bricks and stones. And the tower is to the glory of God, not to the glory of men. See, Babel was a tower built by men for their own glory. But what God is building in the church is a tower to the glory of God. And every one of you is a stone in it. Doesn't matter what color stone you are. It doesn't matter what part of the world composition of your stone is. We're all being built together into a tower to glorify the Lord. This is what we're trying to do here. Now, Paul is obviously addressing a scenario in his day that was pretty complicated because you had, you had Jews and you had Hellenized Jews and you had Gentiles. That was pretty tough. Well, what we're trying to do is every bit as tough as that and maybe a little bit more. Because we don't just have people from the Mediterranean region of the world, do we? We got people from the whole thing. We're not going to be able to succeed in this if we can't agree on a common language. Now, by saying that, I don't mean I'm saying we have to speak English, but you know that we do have to speak English because most Americans can't learn anything else. So, <laughs> thank you for that mercy. But what I'm really talking about here is a common language of experience within the community. When we started talking about this a couple weeks ago, Pastor Tim spoke to you a couple weeks ago about the mission statement of the church to live the gospel. And you heard Shelley reference that when she made the offering appeal. How do we live the gospel? And Pastor Julie continued the theme last Sabbath as she talked about the vision, the GPS, the passion for God, passion for people, and passion for service. 
What I'm introducing to you today and want to talk about for the next weeks that come is values. Because ultimately, the values become our common language. When we all speak from these values, then we will be able to resolve the issues that will inevitably arise because of the multicultural and multi-generational reality of this community. This is a project that we've been working on. The staff worked on this a great deal last year, and I appreciate Pastor Tim who led us faithfully through this week after week, even after we had become despairing that we would never get done with it, but continued to move us forward and then worked with ADCOM, who gave feedback and we worked some more and then, then came to the board, and the board adopted this unanimously together. Five values for this community. Now, when I talk about each of these, realize that there, there is a realized reality to them and an aspirational reality to them. There is part of this that we're doing and part of this that's still to come. What are those five values that you're going to be hearing about each on a different week in the weeks ahead? Number one, worship. Worship has been a deep value of this community for a long time. And the investments that have gone into this corporate worship experience at different levels for a long time has been critical to this church's experience. But it's also become a source of stress recently because of another value that I'll get to in a second. But worship, family, okay, what's the realized notion of reality of our commitment to family? Well, I think it's that building over there, right? The Children's Ministry Center? Yeah, that's a realized reality. But there's still more we can do in this area. Worship, family. Here's the one that's causing us a little stress right now. Togetherness. Togetherness. You see, as we as a staff have been listening to the voices of the community as the community leaders have spoken to us and the lay leaders have spoken to us, one of the messages we keep getting is, I think we've come to the end of us being three separate islands of services. And somehow separate but equal is not who we want to be. And a new generation of leadership is saying we want more togetherness in what we do. And that one's causing us a little stress on worship. I'm not going to lie. Worship, family, togetherness, service. Service is something we've been engaged in in different ways. We have some realized reality here. We also have great opportunity for aspirational growth. And then the last one, testimony. Now, we struggled for a while on this word. Because, in, in essence, it was an evangelism kind of thing, but that word has so much baggage on it, and, and sharing, but that doesn't really get it. Um, so we, we went back and forth, and we finally settled on testimony that what we are as a community, what we are living as a people, is both attractional and intentionally reaching out to give testimony to this faith that we have and to this amazing work that God is doing in this place at this time. 
Worship, family, togetherness, service, testimony. This needs to become our common language. This needs to become the basis of our rules of engagement. And it needs to become how we will accomplish God's will together in what is a rapidly changing reality around us. When I told Pastor Justin that uh, my title was Life Together, he said, oh, you're going to quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And I said, wow, I didn't even think of that. I should have. That, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the German theologian who actually wrote a book called Life Together, or, or the, uh, I guess it was a book. It was a book, right? Yeah, a book called Life Together. And, um, and powerfully wrestled with these issues of being the church. Now, if you don't know his story, he, he was a German theologian who came to America and, and was incredibly impacted. In fact, one of the, the very powerful impacts in his life was he participated in African-American worship while he was in America. He didn't have that in Germany. And he encountered in the spirituality of that experience something that took him to another level. And in the singing of the songs that grew from oppression, so many of the spirituals did, he resolved in his own heart he couldn't stay safe in America. He had to go back to Germany because it was World War II in those days. And he went back to Germany and he didn't just cooperate and keep his mouth shut. And before long, he got himself arrested and put in a concentration camp. And they made sure they killed him just before his camp was liberated. He wrote these words. God's judgment and grace reaches out to persons. That is, to all the individual persons in the church. Their community of spirit is based upon and is kindled in their mutual love. They surrender themselves to each other and to God and thereby form a community both with one another and with God. And this community, which in history is never more than incipiently realized and is constantly breaking up, is real and eternal here. How they all become one and yet all remain themselves. How they are all in God and yet each is separate from God. How they are all in each other and yet exist for themselves. How each has God entirely and alone in the merciful dual loneliness of seeing and serving truth and love and yet is never lonely but always really lives only in the community. These are things it is no longer given us to imagine. We walk in faith, but we shall see not only God, but God's community too. We shall no longer merely believe in its love and faith, but see it. We shall know the will of God continually ruling over us and put it into practice in the kingdom of the community. Now that is an aspirational goal, isn't it? 
Do you want to be a part of something like that? So here's the reality. To get to where we need to be, we can't use that famous business phrase, this has got to be a win-win for everybody. It doesn't work like that. Because the Christian life requires sacrifice. And for us to get to where we need to be, everything can't be the way I like it. And everything can't be the way you like it. Because there's too many of us in here who come from different backgrounds, different contexts, different realities. So if I could be so bold, I think the only way to the future we want is not a win-win, it's a lose-lose. What am I willing to give up that God's community will be strong and grow? Revelation 14, the first angel's message. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We can be a fulfillment of this. A people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. Well, maybe not everyone, but lots of them. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the day of the three angels. May God help us as we do our part by His Spirit as He undoes the curse of Babel and restores our unity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray that we are mature enough to move beyond the necessary separations you've put in place and that our unity would not be a unity to destruction but rather a unity to the glorifying of God. In the ways that we're not ready, Lord, prepare us. In the ways that we are, help us to move forward with this common language that we might live the gospel in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.